Welcome to the CC Podcast, where we deliver authentic, inspiring, and below-the-surface conversations with people striving to walk with God each day. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the CC Podcast. Uh, This is the first. This is our first mobile podcast. It's the first time I've uh, jumped on the road and headed somewhere to get an interview that I really wanted to get, and I'm with Phil Hopper today, uh, Pastor Phil Hopper from Abundant Life Church. Phil, how long have you been here? Unbelievably, Matt, it's been 20 years. As 20 years. That's awesome. Yeah. You must be doing something. You got any plans to go anywhere else? This is the only place I've ever wanted to be and the only church God's ever called me to. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, Phil was gracious enough, and you're going to hear this story unfold, but basically um, he preached a sermon on March 29th, or it was publicized on the website at, at Abundant Life Church in Lee's Summit on March 29th that I was tipped off to and my family and I watched that for church the following Sunday morning. And uh, as I was sitting there watching that and having made a connection with Phil last year at the Cedar Falls Bible Conference, I had just on a, on a whim reached out to him and asked if there's any chance I could drive down and interview him so we could go deeper into this message. And what I want to do today, Phil, is uh, you're not going to re-preach the sermon. Frankly, people should go listen to the sermon. I'll have it linked in the show notes here. Um, but I want to I go on a couple rabbit trails or dig deeper into some of the things that you said. I just thought it was a very, very powerful message, very timely. Uh, thank you so much uh, for making time for this. And, and especially on short notice like this, it's Easter week. I mean, this probably wouldn't be possible if things were normal. Probably not. And, uh, and just the timeliness of this, it's great for us that we're going to be able to get this interview out. I think we're going to publish it tonight. So right. uh, that's great. Um, I want to give a little bit of background just to how I got connected with Phil. So obviously a lot of people listening to this know I'm the director of the Cedar Falls Bible Conference. And um, we're always looking for speakers. It's an eight-day conference every summer between uh, the end of July and early August. And so as the director, you get all these recommendations from people. And frankly, most of the time it's like, no, no, you know, not that guy. Uh, or no thanks, or I know your grandson's a really good guitar player, but probably not, you know, or whatever it is. And so uh, got a recommendation from some people up there, Norman Cheryl Gertis, whose son Dan goes to church here at Abundant Life in Lee's Summit. And they said, Matt, if you're ever looking for a great speaker for the Bible conference, you got to look at this Phil Hopper guy. I hadn't heard of you. And so I, I looked you up and I started doing a little bit of vetting. And the, just by chance, the first message I saw was a message where you had Dan Norman Sherrill's son come up and give a testimony and kind of share with his wife Karen about the loss of their son Ryan several years ago. Yeah. It was a powerful message and a powerful testimony and I caught the vision when I was watching that to have Dan come and talk about that. How do you trust the Lord through hardship and loss and grief? And then you came and talked about defeating the enemy, which is, a, is that's the name of the book, right? Yeah, my first book was Defeating the Enemy, which is understanding the enemy's strategy, uh, Satan's tactics that he uses against us. Yeah, great book. And you gave a couple talks on that last sure year did. at the Bible conference. Mm-hmm. So uh, again, as I was kind of vetting you before we even invited you to the Bible conference, because like I said, we get some, we get some recommendations that just aren't worth looking at. And so uh, 
one of the things that caught my attention, it caught my wife's attention actually, is she noticed that you had had Heidi St. John at your church yeah. last year sometime. Yeah, we love Heidi. And uh, my wife loves Heidi. And, um, and I've listened to some of the podcasts that Heidi does as my wife has listened to them. And this woman doesn't play games. Yeah, she's a warrior. She is a warrior. <laughs> and in fact, one time, uh, I, I'm in love with Heidi St. John. One time my wife said, uh, you know, I don't want you to listen to her anymore because you're going to end up wishing you were married to her instead of me. I said, no, 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 babe. I'm, I'm, I'm 100% satisfied with you. In fact, the fact that my wife loves Heidi St. John as much as she does makes my wife even more attractive in my eyes. Right. Uh, and, and so I knew that if you were going to invite somebody like Heidi St. John, who's somebody who's going to say some things that aren't necessarily popular all the right. time, that, okay, now this guy and this church are, are like worth taking seriously. And so with Norm Gertis and Heidi St. John's endorsements, uh, we invited you to the Bible conference. That went really, really well. A as fate would have it, I mean, we've maybe exchanged some texts since last summer, but mm -hmm. haven't really stayed in close touch. And, and wouldn't you know that the two, the two influencers that got us to watch your message last Sunday from March 29th, Heidi St. John mentioned it in her podcast. Mm -hmm. My wife mentioned we should listen to this. And Norm Gertis, same guy that recommended you initially, texted me or emailed me, said, Matt, you can't miss Phil's sermon from the 29th. And so uh, we, we put that on last Sunday. And as I was listening to this message, it was just, uh, man, there is so much, so many nuggets that have so many implications mm -hmm. in what's really going on right. that, that I just wanted to come and unpack some of that with you. So uh, thank you so much. Well, I'm honored that you're here, Matt. We love you, your ministry. And uh, the fact that you drive five hours to get here, man, it's a joy to sit and get to hang out with you today and talk about the Word of God, what God is doing in our world, and what our God is doing in our nation, what He's doing in the church. I think it's a great time. Uh, by the way, um, Phil's messages from the Bible Conference and Dan's are at the CedarFallsBibleConference.com or not the, it's just cedarfallsbibleconference.com. So if you want to listen to those and be encouraged, pick up that book, Defeating the Enemy. You've written, you've written another book, right? Uh, yeah, I just released the second book, actually, which was a follow-up to the first book. And the second one is on our armory, where the first one was on the enemy's strategy, and kind of a study of Genesis 3 and how he deceived Eve, the very same moves he put on Eve, he puts on you and me in the 21st century, uh, where the second book now is a study of our armory. It's a study of Ephesians 6, our weaponry. We have weapons and we can win, yet most people don't know how to use them. And so that second book has just been released in March to the public that we're real excited about. Helping believers walk in the victory that Jesus secured for us at Calvary. So that probably means we'll have to invite you back to the Bible conference and have you talk about those. Well, as you know, I would be honored. Awesome. So let's dive into this message. First of all, um, Obviously, you guys had plans for Abundant Life Church, right? For a series, or you're leading up into Easter, it's Lent. Yes. And so you didn't have the, the uh, Arise and Awake. Is oh, that no. the name of the sermon? The, the message was Arise and Awaken. That's right. So that wasn't on your radar until no, just no. at least, what, maybe a couple weeks ago? Tell me how that all evolved. Well, I actually had had my sermons and series planned all the way out through the end of the summer, Matt. And... Uh, you know, I kind of work week to week in terms of sermons, but in terms of the big idea, uh, we try to work several months out. And then when this came out of nowhere, what I've called a divine interruption, 
I realize God is wanting to do some unique things in our church, in the church. And so I literally shelved. I was in the middle of the series, The Weapons of Our Warfare, where I had just released this book. And uh, our people were reading this book and we were studying the book. And I was doing a series that went along with the book. And I actually have two sermons left at the end of the series I'll come back to later this year that I am not preached yet because I felt God really literally wanted to interrupt uh, everything that we were doing and that we just needed to really sit and listen and lean into the Holy Spirit. What does he want us to do? God, what do you want me to say? And so everything I've done since this divine interruption has really been uh, something I had not intended at all. In that week of the 29th, uh, I felt God really, really drawing me into uh, preaching what I call a prophetic message. You know, the preacher is more than an expositor. He's called to be the prophet. And I, I think one of the biggest problems in modern church and modern Christianity is uh, we lack the prophet, the prophetic voice God has given us to be the conscience of society. It's Nathan looking at King David and saying, you're the man. It's John the Baptist looking at King Herod and saying, it's wrong to have your brother's wife. Nobody wants to do that work. Everybody wants to be the comforter, the nurturer, the expositor, uh, but the church is called to more than that. And, and, and the reality is uh, a lot of people don't realize in this age where we have created the God we want instead of the God that is, that God is a God full of grace, he's full of mercy, but we have forgotten the fear of the Lord in this country, that he's also a God that must bring judgment and justice on sin. So this divine interruption, there's more than one agenda. As I said in the message, why wouldn't God judge our nation? But historically, wherever God has brought down the gavel and the hand of judgment, he also brings down the hand of compassion, the hand of mercy, and he wants to woo us with a warning. And I sense right now, this is what God is doing. He's both warning us that he can come invade our party anytime he wants, yet he's trying to woo us back to him. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. That's good stuff. It, it is not lost on me that this is the most powerful country in the history of the world. You could probably make a theological argument for Israel, but in terms of just worldly strength, the United States is the most powerful ever at its wealthiest point in history ever. Yeah. And within two or three weeks, yeah. I mean, snap, and it's gone. Now, right. here's, here's what you talked about at the beginning of your message. You uh, told a great illustration about a bubblegum party, and people are going to have to listen to get all this. By the way, let me just say that... Uh, I know that there's going to be some issues with our sound because we're not in the studio and we're kind of in a cavernous room and, and I've got cords all over the place that aren't usually in my way. So just pardon that stuff and, and um, it, it shouldn't get in the way too bad. But um, you talked about God chastening us as a society. You talked about God chastening those who he loves. Uh, we shouldn't despise the chastening of the Lord. And you said at a minimum... This divine disruption is that. Uh, it's, a, it's a chastening. Um, I, have, I have several questions about that, but let me just ask this. When you say at a minimum, what could it be beyond at a minimum? The full-blown judgment of God upon our nation. I believe it's the chastening of God upon the church, the bride of Christ. Uh, and, and, and in some capacity, yes, it is the judgment of God. God has to judge sin. But I'm convinced God is more focused on what he wants to do in the body of Christ. 
As Peter said, judgment must begin in the house of God. As the church goes, so goes the nation. Listen, politics don't shape the moral climate of a nation. It merely reflects the moral climate of a nation. It's the church that is called to shape the moral climate of a nation. So that message was really preached more to the church Mm -hmm. because we are where we are as a nation because we are as the church where we are as the church. And so, uh, you know, it says in Hebrews 12, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son that he receives. And he that is without chastening is an illegitimate son. And what we see right now is the chastening of the bride of Christ, the chastening of the body of Christ, the chastening of those that know him and are born again, but have fallen asleep on the job. You know, I call it arise and awake. And Paul said in Ephesians 5, awake you who sleep. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time for the days are evil. And the simple truth is we've been called to keep the lights on and we have failed in some way as we have gone asleep. And instead of keeping the lights on, it's become a dingy gray. One of the things that underlies all this is God deals with his children differently than he deals with those who aren't his children. Absolutely. You gave a great illustration about spanking your kids, which you also highlighted is not the same as beating your kids. And frankly, let me just say something about that quick. Or let let me let you say something about that. Spanking. Why has it become so taboo? I mean, I was spanked as a kid, and my dad did it in a very gracious and healthy and God-honoring way. And I needed it. I deserve more spankings than I got. My kids are the same way. They're better off for it. Like, why has this gotten such bad press? Well, I think like everything else, uh, our nation has become very arrogant to the extent that we're convinced we know more than God. So while the Bible has so much to say about child rearing, nurturing our children, and then love and admiration of the Lord, um, you know, we've listened to people that don't know God and consequently think they know more than God about how to raise up children. So we emphasize self-esteem, which is far different than self-confidence. You know, Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, uh, do nothing through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem the others better than himself. Let each you not on your own interest, but on the interest of others. So what does the Bible say about self-esteem? <laughs> We're to esteem others. And so consequently, as we raise up children to be strong in their self-esteem, what we're really doing is raising up people that become very selfish, self-focused in a selfie society. And so uh, I, I think it just has to do again with political correctness instead of biblical correctness, Matt. Uh, and, and here's the, the amazing thing about the Hebrews 12 passage. When you spank and chasten your children biblically, it draws them to you. It deepens the affection and the intimacy that you share as a father and a son or a daughter. It's what happens with our Father in heaven. As he chastens us, he will not let us sin and win. We learn to take him seriously. And so our love for him grows and so does our intimacy. Imagine a father that didn't care and didn't love you enough and let you do whatever you want. You don't have to imagine. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that kind of underlies that relationship as God, God's relationship with his children. This is one of my biggest pet peeves in Christianity. And it has been for about at least 15 or 20 years. And it's gone way beyond that. This notion that we are all God's children. Right. Okay. Uh, I, I worked part time at a local church 
at one point in my life. And I remember there was a sign over the stairway going down to the fellowship hall that said, we are all God's children. And it had this nice multi-ethnic picture of all these little kids. And of course, there are people from every tribe, tongue, and language who are God's children. But not everybody is God's child. And uh, one of the problem, one of the reasons that matters is because if you think everybody is God's child, versus what's true is God created everybody in his image. Um, but not everybody is God's child. John uh, 1, 12, to those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But we throw around this children of God label mm -hmm. very loosely in the church. Yeah. And one of the problems with that is it miscommunicates the nature of God because all of a sudden you've got God dealing with people who aren't his children in a way that seems really outrageous when you think about a father dealing with his own children. Talk about that a little bit. Well, it's right. Again, political correctness instead of biblical correctness. John 1, 12 is very specific. But to them that received him, to them gave him power to be called the children of God. Not to just anyone, but to them. You cannot be a child of God until you've been born again by faith in the Son of God. And that's the nature of the new birth. Jesus said twice in John 3, marvel not, I say unto you, you must be born again. The reason why is you don't come into this world as a child of God. You are born into this world physically as a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve. You're not born as a child of God. You're born as a child of a man and a woman fallen in Adam's image. Genesis 5.3 is very specific. After Adam fell, though he'd been created in the image and likeness of God, he was to reproduce that image and likeness in his offspring. But because he sinned, he died spiritually. He could no longer reproduce God's image in his offspring. He was to give birth to other sons of God like he was a son of God. But because he sinned, he could not do that any longer. Genesis 5, 3, and Adam begat his son Seth in his own image, in his own likeness. Look at how specific the word of God is. Adam now could not reproduce God's image. He could only reproduce his own image. No longer would his children be God's children. They would now be children of a fallen man and a fallen woman, which is why Jesus said you must be born again. Only when you put your faith in him can you be born again then as one of God's children. The first time you're born physically of corrupted seed, which is why it says in 1 Peter 1.23, you must be born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God that lives and abides forever. The moment of salvation, what happens? You are born again by the incorruptible seed of Genesis 3.15, that promised seed of the woman that would give life to Adam's children who had died with him because we were in him when he sinned. And so, no, we're not all God's children. Uh, we, we can certainly... Uh, have value for all men and all women, intrinsic, infinite value, because every man and woman is indeed, in some capacity, born in the image of God. But that image has been marred by sin, which is why they must be born again by faith in Him. Uh, so it's commonly said, but absolutely theologically speaking, completely wrong to say that everyone's a child of God. And so what that means is God doesn't deal with you as a child, as a son or a daughter, until you've been born again. In fact, what the Scripture teaches is apart from Him, you're the enemy of God. You're estranged from God. Ephesians 2, 1 says, We are dead in our trespasses and sin. 
You see, we are under the judgment of God from the moment we're born. Uh, Romans 5.12 As by one man sin, death entered the world. So death passed on all men. For all have sinned. We are born under sin's penalty, which is death eternally. And so God can't deal with us as a child uh, to chasten us as a loving father. He has to deal with us as a just judge uh, bringing down that gavel upon our sin, which is death forever. And so it completely changes the relational component uh, with someone who doesn't know God through the Son of God versus those of us who do. One of the benefits of this whole coronavirus uh, time out has been our family's been spending a lot more time together. We just got out of a basketball season where I'm, I'm an assistant high school basketball coach. My son's on the team. My daughter plays on a different team. We're running a million directions. You've probably been there. And uh, our devotional rhythm and discipline just kind of slid. And we're getting back into that now. And uh, we've been in, we're, we're doing a Bible overview. So we're in Genesis. Um, and this is for the sake of my seventh, seventh grade daughter to just kind of give her a Bible overview and all of us a review, but we were just in, I think it's Genesis 15, 16, when um, Abraham pleads for blessing for Ishmael, who is the illegitimate son, mm -hmm. and God gives Ishmael his blessing yeah. and says, you'll have many descendants, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And my wife pointed this out. I'd never seen it before. And then right after that, it's Isaac. But what am I going to do with Isaac? I'm going to establish a covenant. Yeah. And so people who aren't children of God receive the general blessing of God all the time. The, right. the rain falls on the righteous and right. the unrighteous. Yeah. But there is a special covenant relationship between God and his children. And I love the distinction you just made between chastening, which is what God does mm -hmm. with his children, mm -hmm. and judgment, which is what God does with people who aren't his children, even though people who aren't his children still receive the general blessing of God. Sure, you absolutely. Wanna, you want to say anything else about that? or? Yeah, well, there's a difference between uh, the punishment of God and the chastening of God, the discipline. Chastening is discipline. When you, when you spank your child, it's, it's not merely judgment. It, it's disciplining them. It's correcting them because you love them. Uh, whereas the judgment of God upon sin, here's the reality. This is why God doesn't merely judge us for our sin, but he chastens us for our sin. Uh, Jesus took all of our sin upon himself. This isn't double jeopardy. You know, in our judicial system we have in the American judicial system, you can't be tried for something twice. Well, here's the reality. Our sins were already tried. When we place our faith in Jesus, all our sin is placed on him. It's already been judged on the cross. Every single one of our sins, past, present, and future, it's all under the blood of Jesus. And so consequently, now what do we do? If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's like now, listen, when, when my child sins against me, uh, he doesn't stop being my child. I don't kick him out of the family, but I love him, so I'm going to chasten him. What happens? It preserves the fellowship of a father and a child. And his sin, his disobedience toward me does nothing to break the relationship. He will always be my son. He was born of my seed. That means he'll always be my son. Nothing can change the fact he's born of my son. Sin does not cause you to lose your relationship as a child of God, but it causes you to lose your fellowship as a child of God. And so that's the difference between how God deals with our sin as his children versus how he deals with somebody else's sin that's not one of his children. 
Uh, they are under the judgment of God, Romans 1.16, the wrath of God. But Jesus took our wrath upon himself, so now he can deal with us as sons and daughters. That's great. Um, just a time out. I haven't properly introduced you. I mean, so this, this is coming from a former football player and a former SWAT cop. I mean, pretty, pretty sharp stuff for a dumb football player, right? <laughs> uh, the other thing I want to point out is, is for people who can't see you right now, uh, you're taller than me, and you look. What's the guy's name on Pawn Stars? Rick. Do you ever watch that show? Oh, come on! I'm far more handsome than Rick. <laughs> come on, I have a lot more hair than he does. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever had anyone draw that comparison? Oh, uh, you know, all bald guys look alike. Matt. That's what. That's what you're saying. <laughs> that's good. So tell me, just just briefly, your biography. I mean, how did you come to know Christ briefly, and then and then football, and then Kansas City Police? And, yeah. So I was raised in a very godly Christian home, genuinely Christian home, by very godly parents, church kid, Sunday school kid. But my story is Luke 15, the prodigal son. By the time I was a teenager, I'm what we call a rebellious teenager. And there's different kinds of rebellion. There's the in-your-face rebellion. The teenager decides to go through mom and dad or over mom and dad. I was far too smart for that. I just went around mom and dad. I went under the radar with my rebellion. Uh, but by the time I left for the University of Kansas on a full-ride football scholarship, I was living the dream, playing Division I football. Uh, I'm away from my home, no mom and dad, no curfew, no accountability. <laughs> I'm the prodigal son in the far country. But it, most of us know the parable. Uh, he ends up in the pig pen of sin. And I can genuinely say, I, I know what he, Hebrews 12 feels like. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son that he receives. And he that is without chasing is an illegitimate son. Meaning, if you can sin and win without conviction for your sin, you're not one of his. You need to have some introspection. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself whether you be in the faith. Examine yourself whether you be reprobate. And what God is teaching here, look, if you are indeed born again as a child of God, you may sin but you won't win. You may have a blast, but it won't last. He's going to bring chastening on your backside in one way or the other. You know, the Old Testament term is backsliding. You can backslide, but the promise, if you're a child of God, is you're going to slide back up again. And so by the time I'm 21 years of age, I'm a junior, uh, I am uh, genuinely now under conviction. I'm not even sure at this point I'm a Christian because how can you be sure when you're living in sin? And I had sinned habitually over and over again as a lifestyle since I was a teenager, a party scene, every night's another party, uh, drinking, uh, doing the things that lost people do far from God on a college campus. But there is the conviction of the Holy Spirit if you're born again. He lives within and, and there was that still small voice and I was wrestling and I was running and I was hiding. I wouldn't give up, I wouldn't give in. 1989, I'm coming back from Lawrence for Christmas break. I get run off the road by an 18-wheeler semi. And the tracks in the snow tell the story. I, I go through the median of the interstate into oncoming lanes. I'm completely out of control. I'm doing 360s, I'm spinning, trying to recover. I realize I'm not gonna recover. I go back through the median into the same lanes I was in, the eastbound lanes, I look up, I see another 18-wheeler coming, I realize that I'm gonna collide. It's just like, Matt, you hear in life and death situations, everything slows down, your life flashing before your eyes, 
what takes only nanoseconds feels like it's forever, the things you have time to think. And in that moment, I resigned my life. I knew I was going to die. And the last thing I thought before impact with that 18-wheeler was, I don't know where I'm going, but I guess I'm going to know now. Wow. Because I knew I was going to die, and I knew I was going to be somewhere forever, hmm. either heaven or hell. And I did not know where it would be or what I would see when I opened my eyes in eternity. Well, as you can see, I live, but that's the day I tell people I died. Hmm. I went to a funeral in 1989 that changed my life, and that funeral was mine. Hmm. I went home that day, got on my bedroom floor, got on my face, literally, before God. I repented of my sin. And I died to myself, but when I stood up, a resurrection took place and a new man lived. And from that day, at 21 years of age, uh, I have walked with Jesus. And that was a radical transformation. Uh, uh, you know, my, my drinking days were over. In fact, the last time I, I ever held a drink uh, was 21 years of age. <laughs> and so uh, my drinking days were over, my, my running days were over. I started following Jesus at 21. Even then, couldn't fathom that I would be in ministry. I went on the police department shortly after graduating from Kansas in 1992. Uh, started my career in law enforcement. People ask, why do you want to be a cop? Truthfully, you know, the interview answer is because we want to help people. Uh, the real answer is I didn't want to be bored. <laughs> and so I can honestly say I was never bored. Never dreamed I'd be in vocational ministry, but by then I was very much living on mission. We're all called to mission. We're all called to ministry. I'd share the gospel with uh, whoever I was writing to man with that night, answering calls in between. You know, I was always looking for a way to make my vocation my place of mission. And uh, still couldn't fathom I'd be in ministry. And one day, showed up to this little church in Lee Summit. It was a brand new church that had just started, never dreaming I'd be a pastor. And walked through the doors that day and never dreaming that church would one day become abundant life. And about two years later, that little church would be without a pastor. He resigned. On a Tuesday night, I got a call from a member of the church board. They needed somebody to preach on Sunday. It tells you the desperate situation. They called a <laughs> cop of all people. And I showed up that day and preached, thought it would be one and done. And to my amazement, 20 years later, here I am. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Another thing that I've noticed just watching you is, is he's not reading these Bible passages off of anything. This is in your heart, in your head. Just give the people some encouragement about Scripture memory, and how have you developed that? <laughs> people ask me all the time, Matt, well, how do, you, how do you memorize so much Scripture? I'm telling you, it's just familiarity. I haven't sat down, like, I'm going to memorize this passage. Here's my cue cards, postcards, you know, whatever it is. and just It's just spending time in the scripture, pouring yourself into the word of God and letting the word of God be poured into you so it becomes a part of you. Uh, you don't have to think about how to get home. You've driven that way so many times. You don't have to think about what your email address is if you've had it very long at all. You don't have to think what your social security number is. Uh, this, these are things that just flow out of you. And so I hear people say all the time, well, I, I I just can't memorize. You must have a photographic memory. No, I really don't. 
Uh, and I'm convinced if you want to, you're able to. It takes some work. Some of us have to work harder than others at it, but it's possible. Think about, think about all the things you've memorized you didn't even try to. All the jingles you've memorized. Uh, two all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame <laughs> bun. How long has it been since McDonald's played that jingle? Long time. 20 years ago at least. I can still say it. Right? Because you, you memorized things you didn't even try to. So look, one of the things we've talked about in Weapons of the Warfare, the book I authored on defeating the enemy and then how to use our weaponry is uh, the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6, 17, it has to become a natural part of your being. When the bullets are flying, you can't say, oh, wait a minute, time out. Let me get my gun loaded. Uh, you know, when I was a cop, it was the repetitions, thousands and thousands and thousands of repetitions of drawing your weapon over and over again, drawing it over and over again, because in the heat of the moment, you don't have time while the bullets are flying to think about what to do. It's gotta be second nature. And that's the nature of the Word of God. It is our weapon. And in the heat of the moment, you can't call time out. You've got to draw your weapon and know how to use it. That's great. So going back into your message, early on in the message, uh, you were saying God's got my attention. He's probably got all of our attention with yeah. this kind of shutdown. Everything stops. The economy tanks. Um, can you say personally, just what are a couple ways specifically for you that God's got your attention? And before you answer that, I'll share a couple of mine, just give you a chance to think. But I, I mentioned, you know, our devotional life as a family, which we kind of lost the pace of during basketball season. I mean, we're back into that routine, which is great. Um, I'm in the Psalms. I've got a, a guy who, who contributes to our daily devotional on this podcast, just challenged me, use April and read the Psalms. And I've never really gotten into the Psalms a whole lot. It's abstract and poetic, mm -hmm. and it's it's. I like the stories better, the narrative and the and the theology, and obviously there's theology in the mm -hmm. Psalms. And uh, um, our youth director for our kids is talking, encouraging the kids to spend some time in solitude. And we had a conversation about that. So many things in our lives have been stripped away. You don't even have to be that disciplined now to be in solitude because right. there's a bunch of stuff you can't do. Now you still got to get rid of your phone, and you still got to be intentional. But it's easier now than it's ever been. What are some ways that God has your attention or is using this time to kind of develop you? Yeah, I told our church, I think week one or week two of this, it's like God has put everybody in timeout. All right, we've talked about spanking our kids. I think it's a biblical tool to discipline, correct them. Sometimes it's just timeout. All right, I want you to sit in that corner and think about it. I feel like this is what he's done with us all. I want you to go in timeout and think about it. You need a reset of your values. You need a reset of your virtues. Uh, you need a brand new vision. And this is what I told our church. When things go back to normal, I hope some things never go back to normal. The worst thing that could happen is that the church gets to gather again on site. We kind of get through this hurricane that's blown in. And everything goes back and everything is exactly the same. There are some things that should never, ever be the same. God wants to do a work of revival in all of our homes. Genuine Holy Spirit revival a move of the Holy Spirit, transformational. And so in uh, my life personally, um, yeah, he's got our attention in this sense that uh, I am, I think, leaning on God in ways I never had before. Um, I've said before, we need a vision that demands divine intervention that keeps us in a state of desperation. All right, the problem is in American society, we are so good at controlling our world. We are so good at uh, c 
controlling our environment. If, if it's lost, we can usually replace it. If it's broke, we can usually fix it. Uh, if I don't have it, I can usually go buy it. So the so sense of the desperation, we think we're desperate, but we're really not. And the Holy Spirit moves in desperation. The early church saw the power of God, the miraculous move of God, because they literally had nothing but God. The problem for the American church, listen, even the poorest among us materially, compared to the rest of the world, we are wealthy uh, financially. And so consequently, we lack a genuine desperation. And we don't see the move of God until we are desperate for God. And so in some sense, it's brought me to a place of greater dependency. Uh, and when you come to greater dependency, that is when you begin to see God move miraculously. And in some ways, we're seeing the miraculous move of God already. And I'm convinced the body. Yeah. One of the things I noticed about your talk on the 29th, we, we watched Tony Evans the week before, title of his message was actually divine disruption, which is the exact phrase that you used. And I, I, I get the sense that people who are tuned into what the Lord's doing are reading off the same script. You know, we're saying the same type of thing. And uh, we're seeing and sensing that the Lord is up to the same kind of um, revival or, or chastening uh, is the word you used. So th that's exciting stuff. Um, I'm skipping over a few points I wanted to make, which weren't that big. One of the things I thought was great, well, let me just say this. Uh, a couple of things that I remember from your time at the Cedar Falls Bible Conference that, that I loved. One of them was, you started your first night, you had a talk and you used some video, and you're talking about how Satan tempts us and like draws us into his traps, and you yeah. use a video of a mouse yeah. getting drawn into a mouse trap. And this is like maybe a minute video, two minute video, and you just see this mouse, it's like it's under a dishwasher or something like that, and you're like, oh no, is this actually gonna happen? Is it gonna happen? Is it gonna happen? And it happens, and the mouse just gets whacked. <laughs> and then, and then uh, not only that, but then the image freezes, and you go on to make a couple points, it's probably up there for another two minutes with just the mouse with, with the thing on its head, and it got whacked, and I thought, man, anybody who's willing to do this, it's a little bit politically incorrect, it's a little bit of a strong point, I thought it was phenomenal. And I just love the guts of going, you know what? We are going to show the mouse get whacked, and we're going to leave it up there and make that point uh, driven home. That's, that's the first thing I love. The wages of sin is death. That's right. Let that image be driven in Amen. to our mind's eye. There's a lot of people, though, you know, who would shy away from oh, that. They try I'm to make sure that in a softer way. I get it. I hear you. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, and it was a new audience, so I knew I was taking a chance up there. Oh, they loved and it. Our church knows me. I mean, they, they know I'll do something like that. Yeah. <laughs> the Cedar Falls Bible Conference is like, uh, they're totally fine with that. The second thing is you hammered on the fact that the church, and when I say church, I want to have a little discussion about the church. Big C Church, that's the body of Christ, right? right? Yeah. That we're all part of if, right. we're, if we're followers of Christ. Yeah. Then you've got little C churches, uh, that are just all these churches out on corners all over the country. You bet. Local churches. And there are people in the local churches that are not part of the body of Christ. I believe it. And that, that's first, that's something, that gets back to the we are all God's children mm -hmm. thing a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but, but the other thing is, is churches, so when I say churches in this sense, I mean little c churches, 
and you hammered on this and you talked about it again in this message, have given up pastors, seminaries, denominations, have given up the inerrancy of God's word. They've given up biblical authority. And uh, that's the ball game. Okay, so I've talked a little bit. Say whatever you want to say. We are living in prophetic times. I told our church this past Sunday of all the prophetic signs we could talk about to illustrate the return of Jesus Christ is very near. We're living on the threshold, I'm convinced. The number one thing I would say is we're seeing in our lifetime what no other church generation in all of church history can say emphatically is we're seeing the prophecy of 2 Thessalonians 2 fulfilled. As, as Paul begins going through the list of things to look for uh, right before Jesus returns, he's telling the Thessalonian church, here's what to look for. The first thing he said is the falling away has to come first. That falling away, that phrase is the word apostia, from which we get the word apostasy. We are watching the great apostasy take place. What does that mean? It means historically, Christians all believe the same thing. Regardless of denominational affiliation or church tradition, there are certain things that makes everyone a Christian if you're a Christian. Biblical inerrancy, Christ's supremacy, that he is deity as the second person of the Trinity, the blood atonement of Calvary, that he was resurrected bodily, that he's coming back one day to rule and reign eternally. These are just the basic tenets of the historic Christian faith. But now you have vast numbers of churches that no longer believe those basic things, pastors that no longer believe those basic things, people who claim to be Christians that no longer believe the basic things that make us Christians. George Barna, who that name is very familiar to a lot of people, the premier religious researcher in America today, has made the statement in his book he published, I think, 1998, 20 years ago now, he made this statement, observation about Christians. The problem with Christians in America is not that they don't believe anything, it's that they believe everything. Mm. We, we, we have become more pagan than Christian in some ways. Well, Jesus is our way, but not the only way. Even though Jesus said, I'm the way. Or you know, the idea that all paths lead to God. Well, Jesus is our path. Uh, 80% of churches in America deny biblical inerrancy, biblical authority. So consequently, it's what I call a cut and paste theology, where we pick and choose what we want to believe and then throw the rest out that we don't want to believe, which is why Christian universalism is making inroads within the church. There's nothing Christian at all about universalism, the idea that everyone goes to heaven. Tell me what you mean. Are you saying general universalism? There is general universalism, but are you thinking of something even more specific when so, you say Christian universalism? When I say Christian universalism, universalism says everyone goes to heaven. That's the all paths lead to God. All roads lead to heaven, right? Christian universalism says that eventually those who die and go to hell will have however many chances they need to confess Jesus as Lord. So eventually... Even if they don't immediately go to heaven, eventually everyone gets to heaven. All right, that's Christian universalism. A way that I've heard it is similar, but they would say uh, everybody gets to heaven through Christ's death and atonement, but it's regardless of whether they put their faith in Christ or not. That's another way it's framed. 
Okay, but but again, this is not this is not a Christian teaching, not remotely. Jesus said in Mark nine forty four, hell is where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. And so, you know, here's Jesus talks four times more about hell than he talks about heaven. I mean, just look at the Gospels, and just 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 the words in red. He talked more about hell than he did about heaven. Yet, the idea that hell isn't real, or that Everyone eventually goes to heaven, yet Jesus talks four times more about hell. doesn't make any sense, does it? Yet, yet because hell is no longer palatable, it's not politically correct. And by the way, Matt, who doesn't struggle with hell? Right. We, ought to, we all struggle with hell, the reality of hell. Heaven forbid we wouldn't struggle with the reality of hell. But the fact that I might not like it doesn't mean I can just decide, oh, that's not real. When Jesus was obviously speaking quite literally, not metaphorically, about it. Yeah, here's, here's the American church where 80% of American churches, 80% of American seminaries, pastors, theologians, reject biblical authority, biblical inerrancy, which means now we can have a cut-and-paste theology, keep part of it, of the ones that I like, the parts that I like, that's palatable. You know, we want the love of God, but we don't want the wrath of God. Even though for every one verse in the Bible on the love of God, there are seven verses in the Bible on the holiness of God. And so uh, we want a God of love, but we don't want a God that is just. And so this is the biggest problem I've convinced we face as a nation, as you've heard me say, as the church goes, so goes the nation. We are living of that great apostasy that Paul was speaking of, where the church, not pagans, not atheists, but the church itself, has turned away from the truth and rejected the truth, the apostate church that now picks and chooses what they think is true and throws away the rest. And there are different levels of apostasy. Uh, There's the red letter Christian movement, which, you know, uh, we believe the words in red, but they really don't. Jesus said a lot of hard things. You know, Jesus himself said that the path to the, uh, through the gates of heaven is narrow and the path straight. But wide is the gate that leads to destruction. This red letter Christian thing, I want to just elaborate on that since I don't know if everyone knows what that is. But these are people who, who say, you know, Paul's writings, uh, the epistles, the Old Testament. God's real mean in the Old Testament, yeah. so we're going to throw that out. Yeah. We're going to throw the epistles out because that's too narrow. And so we're just going to go with the red letters of Jesus, the words that he spoke in the Gospels, and a few of them in Acts. But like you just said, it, there's actually some of the red words they don't like either because Jesus says some hard things. And, and so ultimately, this is being taught in seminaries, though. Correct. Uh, and I, I, um, a denomination that I'm most familiar with is the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. They had a bishop a couple years ago that just recently in an interview said, um, hell probably doesn't exist, but if it does, it's empty. Yeah. Or hell might exist, but if it does, it's probably empty. Some nonsense like that. Well, I had another pastor tell me when he was in seminary, his New Testament professor picked up the Bible, literally threw it across the room, and said, I'm here to help liberate you from the fairy tales that you built your faith on. So it begins in the seminaries, and all these preacher boys go to seminary, and they lose their faith, they lose the word, they lose the sword. And here's the reality, that leads to 2 Timothy 3 and verse 5. Churches have a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. 
the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce even the vision of the soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so the word of God is what gives life. First Peter 1 Peter 1.23, we haven't been born of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, it says, by the word of God that lives and abides forever. So the very thing God gave the church to give life, now that the church has abandoned it, can no longer give life. So the church that was meant to give life can now only keep dead people dead. It's dead religion. 2 Timothy 3.5, in the form of godliness, we still do the rituals, the ceremonies, we take communion, still do the baptism, has the form of godliness, but denies the power thereof. And this is what I see God doing. He's trying to awaken the bride of Christ. He wants to bring repentance to the bride of Christ. It's what Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 that our minds have been deceived from the simplicity that is in Christ. He wants to present us as a chaste virgin bride, but the church is not chaste, and she's not a virgin. Do you understand what happens to the end times church? Revelation 17, 5, she's called a harlot. She's a prostitute bride, and the church today has prostituted itself with lies. The lies of the enemy have found its way into Christianity so consequently, the bride of Christ is anything but chaste and anything but a virgin. She's becoming apostate. You turn to Romans 1, and you said in your sermon, you said you've had pastors tell you Romans 1 should be ripped out of the Bible. <clears throat> My experience with Romans is totally God-ordained, I mean, blessing. There was a guy when I was in college, a doctor in town, Rick Bremner, and uh, we got together on a weekly basis, and he kind of discipled me, and he said, you know, we should start memorizing Scripture. And I'd never, I mean, I'd done a little bit to get awards at, you know, an Awana-like thing, um, but never really taken it seriously. And so where do you want to start? Well, let's start in Romans 8. I don't know why we picked Romans 8, but I think it's one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. Yeah. And then we got done with 8, and we went to 1. Now, unfortunately, I can't quote those for you today because I just haven't used it enough. But um, when I look back, I'm, I'm getting to Romans 1 here. But when I look back at the theological foundations that were put in my life when I did that memory work, because you can't memorize that stuff without actually understanding what it means and soaking it in. And uh, I tell you what, there is so much in Romans 8 and Romans 1. And, and like you said, there are people who don't think Romans 1 should be in the Bible because it's a little too sharp, it's a little too harsh, it's not red letters, it's Paul's letters. And... Uh, and when you throw that out, like you said in your message, if you want to tear out Romans 1, and frankly, my disciple, he did this one time. I was having a hard time with part of Scripture. He said, you want to take his scissors and cut it out? Go ahead. But then just realize that the whole thing falls apart. Um, we've got to take Scripture seriously. One, one of the questions I had, I had a, a ministry colleague ask me the other day, we were talking about some of these things. What's the Lord doing with this whole time out? And... Uh, we were talking about some of these things that we're talking about now. And he said to me, Matt, where is the courage? Where is the courage among these preachers or among these men and women of God to stand up and call truth, truth and be unashamed about it? When I hear you talking, Phil, there is a courage problem, I think. But even before that, there's just a believe in the inerrancy of scripture and take God at his word, period. You adjust your life to him. You don't look for him to adjust his word to you. Yeah. So Barna, in that same survey where he discovered eight out of 10 churches no longer believe in the inerrancy of scripture, what he also discovered is that for the 20% left that actually believes in biblical authority, biblical inerrancy, only a fraction of them 
would actually preach on what the Bible says about the social issues of our day, the polarizing, controversial issues of the day, abortion, homosexuality, the definition of marriage, etc. Because there's too much at stake if they do. So what's one of the marks of being filled with the Holy Spirit? Peter ran for his life the night he, Jesus was arrested. But 40 days later, standing on the streets of Jerusalem, boldly proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, pointing his finger to the very men that crucified him. One of the reasons was he saw Jesus with his own eyes. Yeah, but the other one was he got filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen, the Holy Spirit gives us the power, Acts 1.8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And I understand why preachers don't take a stand on the difficult issues. Uh, I have personally been called a bigot. I've been called a hater. Uh, I have been defamed by our local media. Uh, when we have done nothing less in our city than give away literally hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars of goods and services over the course of 20 years. Blessing our city, serving our city. We have a food pantry last year gave away over a million pounds of groceries, served over 5,000 households in our city. Did yeah. they have to be Christian to get your stuff? Not only do they not have to be Christian, <laughs> we don't care about their sexual orientation. Right. Okay? But, but here, here, here's why I'm convinced uh, we live in an age of puppets instead of prophets, entertainers instead of proclaimers, because it's a Laodicean hour, the Laodicean church. You know not that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked because you say you are rich and have need of nothing. The material prosperity, listen, uh, we need to repent. Preachers need to repent. Pastors need to repent. I need to repent. It begins with me. I need to repent that, that I haven't been more bold. And uh, so uh, what's at stake is nobody wants to be a hater. Why, why, do, why is Romans 1 so polarizing? As I made the point, listen, it is disingenuous, it is dishonest intellectually, it is dishonest scholarship to say, well, Paul was writing from the cultural backdrop and bias of his day in Romans 1, but he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he wrote Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. He was under the Holy Spirit uh, when he said that, you know, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, but Romans chapter 1, uh, he didn't have it right. He was just writing on his own personal bias. And the re reason why is obvious. Because Romans 1 shines a light on the very sins of society. It, it shines a light on what happens when you give God a demotion and man gets a promotion. All of a sudden, we're not living for God's glorification. We're living for self-gratification. And it ends. When you no longer believe in biblical inerrancy, you now have a place of moral anarchy, and it ends in a society of complete sexual depravity, and it specifically names homosexuality. Well, and the other thing about Romans 1 is, yeah, it lists the sexual stuff, but it lists a whole other list of things that we're guilty of. I mean, yeah, like disobeyers of parents. I've done this stuff, okay? <laughs> All of it. And so it's an equal opportunity offender. I mean, no question about it. And if you're a child of God, be thankful for the chastening of Romans 1 because he's drawn you back into a, a stronger fellowship. Um, not only is there a fear or a cowardice to talk about, you talked about social issues, and I would even just call them biblical issues yeah. that, tend, that happen to be controversial Correct. right now. Um, but I, I, I put John 3, 16, and 17, and 18, and 19 in here. We love John 3, 16, and 17. 
Yeah. You, Keep reading. And, and you quoted part of this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's 3, 16 mm -hmm. and 17. Sure. We love it. We quote it all the time. We have our kids memorize it. They get stars that want us for it. Yeah. 18 and 19, almost no one's heard of. Right. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. We like that. Mm -hmm. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Yes. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. These are red letters, by the way. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's not even a social issue. Right. That's just clear Bible doctrine yes. about sin. Here's another one, and then I'll let you comment. You talked in your message about the love of God versus the holiness of God. Mm -hmm. By the way, going back to that John 3 passage, if you're serious about the Lord, if you're serious about Scripture, you love all of those verses. Mm -hmm. So we're not just saying get rid of 16 and 17. Right. I mean, everything hinges on 16 and yes. 17, but, but remember 18 and 19. Love of God and the holiness of God. You said in the Bible there's a one to seven ratio mm -hmm. between conversation about the love of God, which we love mm -hmm. to talk about all, the, all over the place, versus the holiness of God. If you were in most churches today, you would think it was the exact opposite. Sure. And uh, isn't God's love fairly meaningless without a recognition of his righteousness we or our unrighteousness? Fathom. We can't even understand the love of God without understanding the holiness of God. Uh, people say, well, how can a loving God send people to hell? Well, how can a holy God send people to heaven? Yeah, why is one person saved? Uh, yeah, that's the real issue. And so, look, you, you can't begin to fathom God's grace and that new covenant of the New Testament of grace if you don't understand the old covenant of the law. The law was meant not meant to save us. The law was meant to give us an understanding of our need to be saved. God's law is perfection, sinless perfection. Heaven is a place of perfection. Not one sin can enter into heaven or become a place of corruption. And so the problem, when people share the gospel and they only talk about the love of God is nobody understands why that's so amazing. Because they don't understand that I don't merit God's love. Most people think, well, of course God loves me. Why wouldn't he love me? A little lovable, huggable me. Of course, I'm a good person. And so consequently, we, we really can't understand the miraculous, amazing love of God without fully understanding the holiness of God, that we don't deserve his love, that what we deserve is death. What we deserve is the wrath of God, Romans 1.16. But Jesus took our wrath upon himself. That, that is the, the, the glory of the gospel that people can't fathom because we don't emphasize his holiness. We, we, we emphasize his love. I'm going to break in here right now and promote something that we promote on our podcast. It's a website called issuesiface.com. And as you're listening to this, whether you're freaking out about the coronavirus or you've got other, some, some other burden going on in your life, or maybe you're just listening to this and you're realizing, man, I got to get my stuff in order with the Lord. Uh, issuesiface.com is a place where you can go and read about how different Christians have dealt with scads of different issues from depression to anxiety, to divorce, to debt, to sexual sin, to all kinds of things. And what's unique about that website is it gives you the chance to request to connect with an online mentor, 
anonymously. So there might be something going on in your life that you're not ready to talk to somebody about face-to-face yet. You're not ready to call Pastor Phil at Abundant Life Church and, and set up a counseling session. But there are mentors that are wanting to walk with you, encourage you, pray for you, point you to Christ, point you to the scriptures. And so we just want to stop and uh, mention that right now, issuesiface.com. Maybe that'll bless somebody in our audience today. Uh, one thing that you said in your message, you said, I know, you stopped and said, I know this isn't popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've talked about that. We've talked about a lack of courage and a lack of popularity. You said, I've repented of the need for reputation or recognition or celebration. I'm not trying to be the next Christian celebrity. I don't care how many likes I get on my Facebook page or thumbs up on my YouTube page. First of all, I'm totally there. Um, and second of all, I'm interested in your journey to that place. Mm-hmm. I've got my own journey mm-hmm. to being like, you know what, I don't care anymore. We were just laughing about how we're both wearing readers and we look like clowns here with our <laughs> readers on. But it's just, we're at a point, I don't care what I look like. I don't care uh, what people think of me. Mm-hmm. I'm called to be a, an ambassador for Christ an agent of truth, and if people are going to call me a hater, if people are going to shout me down, if I'm going to get treated like garbage from the mm-hmm. media, oh well. Yeah. So these are, these are things you have to choose every day. Nobody is born with humility. Humility is something you have to choose. And what that means for me is, look, as a human being, I do want celebration, I do want affirmation, I do want recognition, I do want reputation. Uh, but I have to repent of it every day. And so am I going to live for the praise of men or the praise of God? You know, we're told in the Gospels there were those that actually embraced Jesus as the Messiah, but they didn't tell anybody about it because they wanted the praise of men. They didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. So when I say that, Matt, look, um, it's something that I have to repent of all the time. Jesus said about John the Baptist, greatest man ever born among women. You know why? John 3 and verse 30. John's disciples came to him and said, John, that guy over there, he's taking some of our people. All right, they're following him now. What do we do? He's speaking of Jesus, of course. Right? John said, oh, no, guys, you don't understand. He must increase, but I must decrease. I'm telling you, that's not normal for a human being. We want to increase. And so what is repentance? Repentance is a choice. I I repent of my need for affirmation. I repent of my need for recognition. Uh, Because one day we're going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and everything that we did is going to be put through the fire and tested of what sort it was. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. And Matt, everything we did for our own glorification, our own fame, our own name, gonna go up in smoke. I want everything that I do to be for Jesus, for his glory, for his fame, for his name. What that means is I don't care anymore. I don't need more trophies. Uh, I I don't need more ribbons. You know, I, I come from a background of sports and athletics and it was all about the competition and conquest and winning, keeping score. Uh, I, I want one thing. I want Jesus and his name and his fame. Uh, and, and so what does that mean for me? It means there are some sins from which you can never say, well, I can never be tempted with that again. You know, the bait of Satan comes in three forms. First John two fifteen: lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. The pride of life is fame. 
And, and Satan wants to bait us all with that need for recognition and reputation. There are some sins, look, I haven't been tempted to go out and get drunk since I was 21. Probably not, not real high odds of me going home by way of the liquor store today. <laughs> but every single day when I got, get out of bed, I've got to choose to do again. John 3.30, he must increase. I must decrease. And then it comes out in the way you live. See, when you're worried about your name, your reputation, you're, you will hold back. Whether it's you witnessing and sharing Jesus in your workplace, whether it's you witnessing and sharing Jesus uh, in the neighborhood where you live, whether it's the preacher on the platform, if you're worried about your name, your reputation, your recognition, you're going to hold back. You're only going to say things that make you look good. But if you're really more concerned now about his fame, his name, you're going to do whatever it takes. You're going to say whatever it takes. Amen. Toward the end of the message, you were talking about needing, this should lead us to introspection. There needs to be some just sit down and, and, and kind of, okay, Lord, I need to repent. You went through First uh, Chronicles 7, 13, 14, Second Chronicles. Yeah. Uh, humble yourselves, pray, seek God, and turn mm -hmm. from your wicked ways, mm -hmm. which was great. And that's for all of us. That's not yeah. just for the preacher Correct. to all you guys, mm -hmm. but that's to each of us. In fact, after that, even in our own living room, after we got done with that, we hit stop and we just shut the TV off and said, okay, so based on what Phil said, let's talk about some idols that have been revealed to us during this time. Uh, one of the kids talked about uh, his friends, wanting to be around his friends. He said, you know, <laughs> he said, I'm going a lot crazier with this thing than I let on. Like, this is driving me nuts. Like, I just want to get out and, you know, I'm getting sick of you guys. <laughs> I want to be with my friends. And we talked about that. That's good, honest stuff. Um, I talked about, I did a devotion on our daily podcast from James 4, you know, where he says, don't say that you're going to go do something tomorrow and just assume that you're in charge of your schedule. Rather, you should say, if the Lord wills it, I'll go to this town and sell these things. Yeah. And so one of the things for me that I've kind of idolized or put more value on is just my ability to be a shot caller. I can yeah. do whatever I want. Right. Um, I had a, a, a trip planned with some college buddies that we do every year out to Las Vegas for the first three days of the basketball tournament. It's a great time for us to get back together. Christian guys, nothing crazy going on there. But that got canceled. March Madness got canceled. Right. We were going on vacation to, to Florida for a few days after that. That didn't happen. Uh, a lot of things that I would do, I don't like to sit around home all day. I got to go out and see people. And so that's off. So it was just kind of a humility. It was a conviction of humility. Like, Matt, you understand you don't do anything unless the Lord wills it. Mm -hmm. And you better just stop and acknowledge that. Yeah. You're not the master of your domain right. here. Um, financial wealth and security are obviously idols that we all have. I, yes. I totally agree with you. In America, we are very wealthy from top to bottom compared to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and not just personal security financially, but financial security for the organizations that I lead. You know, are they going to be taken care of? And, right. and where is my hope? Where is my confidence in that? Um, so those are the, a few of the things that we kind of batted around as a family. When, when you talk about what's the Lord revealing for you in terms of things that mm -hmm. could threaten to be idols? Well, we are all more, more Laodiceans than we think. Mm. You know, Jesus said to the Laodiceans, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm, neither cold or hot, 
I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say you're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, but know not that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Wow, what a scathing rebuke, isn't it? Uh, I mentioned a documentary in a sermon Sunday I preached and was on the underground church in Iran. It's called Sheep Among Wolves. And tells a story of this couple that was able to immigrate from Iran, Christian couple, a Christian. You talk about persecution, a place where they will kill you for being a Christian. Yet the underground church in Iran is the largest church in the world, growing faster than any other church. And here they are. They get to immigrate to the U.S. where it's legal to be a Christian. No more persecution. Within just a few months of being here, she tells her husband, I want to go back. Christians in America are under a satanic lullaby. I can feel myself going to sleep spiritually. I don't want to go to sleep. And they went back to Iran to face persecution rather than go to sleep spiritually in the prosperity of Western society. And so I, I think even for me, everybody would say, well, Pastor Phil, you've been an on-fire preacher for 20 years. Probably, I mean, relatively speaking, compared to what? All right, compared to the church that is dead, compared to the rest of the church in America that's asleep? Maybe. But it's revealed an idol in my life that I confess, and it's, it is security. I, I'm at an age now where, you know, finally get the kids almost through college, but a lot of those bills behind. Now I'm finally ready to save for retirement, which is an entirely Western concept. Unbiblical. Unbiblical concept to begin with. <laughs> Uh, and uh, now all of a sudden, gee, can I keep saving as much as I was used to? And the recession's going to hit the church. And, well, I'm going to have to take a pay cut. And look, God hasn't entitled any of us to any of that. Amen. If I have to work till the day I die, so every other generation before me had to, yeah. why would I think I'm entitled to that? The idolatry of security, the idolatry of a life that is somewhat easy, Listen, the worst thing that's going to happen to me as of right now is I'm going to be called a hater when I preach, even though I don't hate anybody. Amen. Come on, seriously, nobody's going to cut my head off for preaching Jesus like they did Paul, yet we, you know, we, we, we have so many idols that we're not aware of. And, and I made a statement Sunday, idleness will reveal your idols. Hmm. You know, when you're quarantined at home, what do you binge on? Hours and hours of what? What are you watching? For me, uh, it's work. Yeah, for work, okay. Uh, the good news is, according to the latest social science, 55% of Americans are now praying. I don't know what they're all praying to, but at least they're praying. There's an awareness of, gee, maybe we need God here. And, you know, there's a, an elevated, um, according to the Bible, American Bible site, elevated uh, right now study and reading of God's Word. Right, that's good, but, but guess what else? According to the latest stats, uh, what has also spiked is online pornography. Mm -hmm. Your idleness will reflect your idols. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, it's revealing a lot for me too, kind of like you. I've never been to Hawaii. I'm going to take a family vacation to Hawaii first week of June. <laughs> Got lots of money tied up in it. Guess what? We're probably not going. Mm-hmm. And so God is shaking us loose from everything that we were hanging on to instead of him. Mm -hmm. And that's the, as uh, Tony Evans put it, the divine disruption. I'm calling it a divine interruption. Mm -hmm. 
Call it divine intervention. Yeah. He's bringing us to a greater level of desperation, which is when we see the move of God in our life. Got a couple questions kind of following up from your message. We're at an hour and 12 minutes. You still got a little bit of time? I'm good. Okay. So Luis Palau, uh, Latin American evangelist, you quoted him in your message, 80% claim to be, in America, 80% claim to be Christian, but they don't live any differently than atheists and pagans. Here's one of the thoughts I've had about the church in America right now. I'm not sure that born-again Christianity is down that much. Certainly church attendance is, but it's, it's a more popular time. It's more acceptable to just say, yeah, I'm an atheist. Yeah, I'm a pagan. Yeah, I don't believe this crap. Where I think 50 years ago, there were a bunch of atheists and pagans, but they just conformed to the cultural norm of going to church on Sunday. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, do you, th- do you think church attendance and religiosity are certainly down yeah. Do you think the number of true Christians has changed, or do you just think it's more evident that there aren't as many as we ever thought? Well, I, I think there are. There probably are. Nobody can say for sure. Uh, I think the latest social science was 71% of Americans claim Christianity as their faith system. It's well publicized. There are more nuns than there have ever been, N-O-N-E. People are checking none for religious affiliation. So we do see what is interesting where we are a Judeo-Christian civilization, the faith system, the moral, cultural norms. Interestingly, we are going back to a Greco-Roman civilization. Greco-Romans didn't believe in absolute truth. They were pluralistic theologically, many gods, we're Judeo-Christian civilization, there's one God. And so the interesting thing is, we're not becoming a godless nation, we're becoming a nation of many gods. So, I think probably there have never been as many Christians as would have said, I'm a Christian. And Jesus, of course, taught the parable of the wheat and the tares. They look very much alike in the same field. You can't really tell them apart until the time of the end. The tares have always been among the wheat. The goats have always been among the sheep, to use that parable. But I do think because our culture is changing, no longer is it Judeo-Christian in the traditional sense. It's becoming Greco-Roman morally, theologically, uh, pluralistically. That I think it, it is becoming more and more secular, meaning uh, there are more and more people who really claim no religious faith at all. Uh, But the biggest difference, I do think, is uh, the number of Christians who are genuinely pursuing Jesus in a way that is transformational. You know what Luis Palau says, they live as if God has no claim on their life. Well, it's incomprehensible that one could be a follower of Jesus, born again, and live as though he has no claim on their life. Come to church. You know, when it's convenient, they pretty much live however I want, do whatever I want, and then come back, occasionally at least, and, and go to church again. And that's the cultural Christianity of Western society. That, that Jesus uh, and going to church is something I do, but listen, if you're a Christian, it's something you take with you too. That, I think, is what God wants to do in this divine interruption. 
you know, the, there's genuine introspection. And, uh, you know, the plastic fake Jesus that a lot of people hang on to, well, that's going to be exposed mm-hmm. if, if, if that's your Jesus. It's one of the reasons I've said I think this whole thing is an enormous blessing for the church. It is. And when I say the church, uh, I'm talking about the big C church. Correct. And it has implications for the little C church. You said the sheep and the goats. I've said to people, and this might be too harsh, but I, we're going to find out here with greater clarity who's the sheep and who's the goat. Sure. Who's pretending and who's serious. Right. Um, I think that uh, there are people going through the motions. There are people who are Christian in name only. And that's going to be exposed. And hopefully some of them go, I'm not going to go through the motions anymore. I'm going to be real about this. And I'm not going to be Christian in name only. I'm going to be all in on this. And then those of us who for a long time have been Christians, like, like we've said over and over, are being chastened to, toward greater fruitfulness. Yeah. Matt, the prosperity theology has had such a profound influence on Western Christianity. There is a genuine theology, a prosperity theology that says, if you come to Jesus, God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, skinny, and pretty, right? Mm-hmm. It's a health and wealth gospel. Now, for even those of us that aren't prosperity theology, we have been so influenced by Western society that I'm convinced we have in some way a rabbit's foot redeemer, that Jesus is kind of like a four-leaf clover, like we have this transactional concept of our relationship with God, that if I do this, he will do this. And um, in some way, he's the cosmic slot machine, okay? And so what we're learning now is, is what kind of Jesus we've really hung on to. That, that my faith in Jesus, the fact that I follow Jesus, doesn't guarantee that I won't live with a lot of hardship, that I won't live with a lot of headaches, that I won't live with a lot of heartaches. Uh, Christians before us sailed through bloody seas, but we think we deserve beds of flowery ease. Yeah. Yeah, where do we get off thinking? That's not New Testament Christianity. Yet in some way, we've all been influenced. Yep by American culture and what amounts to American Christianity that we think, because I'm a Christian, God will save me from the tribulation. No, the reality is he'll save you through the tribulation, but he hasn't promised any of us that he will keep us from the tribulation. Right. Hardship. You love America, right? I, I mean, love, I love America. So talk about that a second. Just, I mean, because I'm the same way. I've got major concerns with this country, with this society on one hand. And if I go down that road too long, I can sound like I'm this anti-American, you know, let's go find a different utopia somewhere. I love America. Well, I love, <clears throat> I'm, I'm about as patriotic, red, white, and blue, flag-waving American as you'll ever meet. All right. Now, we need to be aware of national idolatry. Amen. Uh, and nation worship. What I mean by that is I think it's really easy for Christians to begin defining their Christianity through their Americanism. Mm. So we have to remember, uh, unlike the nation of Israel, uh, the U.S. has never been a theocracy. Uh, It's never been in a covenant relationship with God like Mm -hmm. Israel. Mm -hmm. All right, but uh, we need to recognize that historically we have been a Judeo-Christian nation, meaning the average American from its inception has been Christian. Therefore, the Judeo-Christian worldview and the Judeo-Christian values have deeply influenced cultural life in America, even though 
there's a lot of things about America's origins that were never Christian. Mm -hmm. Just means generally speaking, the average American has been Christian, even though there's a lot of things that have been unchristian historically about our nation, whether it's uh, slavery, for example, would be the obvious thing. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, but but having said all that, it, it is still God has used our nation. Let's face it, for the last 200 years, to take the gospel to the nations. Unlike probably any other time in church history, except for the earliest days of church history, where those early Christians took the gospel to the entire known world. God has used the Western Hemisphere, and specifically the United States, to take the gospel into places and crevices and corners of the world it had never gone before. Uh, the 20th century, the U.S. was the greatest sending country ever in church history in terms of sending missionaries. So God has used our country to advance his kingdom around the world exponentially. And in some way, I'm convinced that's why God has blessed America. Because in blessing our nation, he has advanced his kingdom. And I think we are naive to think that that can't and won't change if we don't repent as a nation corporately in some capacity. And it has to begin uh, in the church house, not the White House, not the schoolhouse, not somebody else's house, but our house. Amen. Now, I just said that I think this has been a great blessing for uh, Christians in the church. I'm gonna, this might be a little bit of an affront to a pastor. I, I personally, this is not the position of our ministry, this is me. I think it's wonderful that for at least one year, there are no Easter worship services that we can go to. And here's why. I think that we have, even solid Christians among us, have lifted up the worship experience of Easter higher than celebrating the resurrection of Christ. I think we've made it about the production, about the flowers, about getting dressed up, about the nostalgia of Easter or Good Friday services. Today's Monday, Thursday. My church would have had a service on Monday, Thursday. And that's just all off the schedule. And now you're stuck with Easter without church or Easter services. How does the pastor respond uh, to that? I think you're so spot on, Matt. Look, I, I think the gospel this Easter weekend is going to be in front of more people than it has ever been anywhere historically in the Western church. And it's going to be in the most unique way ever. Nobody could have fathomed or imagined that God is moving right now in unique ways, drawing people to him that are far from him, reviving those uh, that have been Laodicean and lukewarm. And the thing, the simple truth, I think the, uh, I guess the hard, cold truth about the church in America is it's been built on consumerism. Consumerism is how you choose where you're going to have lunch or dinner that day. We're going to get the biggest bang for the buck. We're going to get the best value and the best meal for the least money I have to pay. All right, it's about competing, not competing the other restaurant down, right? So church, church in America is built on the same concept, consumerism, where it's been attractional versus missional. Amen. And Easter weekend is the biggest attractional weekend historically ever in the life of the church. Attractional, right? It's every church in America trying to outcool each other and put on the best production and the best program in town. And I, I have a feeling it's Laodicean and it makes God sick. Let, let me vomit this out of my mouth. And so I think this weekend the gospel's going to go out 
no production, no performance, no trying to outcool the church across town. And God is going to move in powerful, profound ways. I, I know right now, somebody just told me on staff, his father-in-law is an atheist, an avowed atheist, walked out on his wife's family years ago when she was only 15. He has been watching our services. Wow. Yeah, this is, this is the kind of thing God is using to draw people to him who otherwise would have never been. Mm-hmm. And God is doing some eternally good things in the middle of this chaos and pain. I want to ask another church question that plays right into this. Church services are so produced, okay? So we've made worship experience our God in some ways, not just Easter worship experience, but worship experience you know, day to day. And by the way, both modernists and traditionists are guilty of this, right? So the modernists, sometimes it's about the cool haircut and the, and the great band and the great you know, atmosphere on the stage and, and the AV stuff and blah, blah, blah. The traditionalists, uh, they've said, well, you can't have a legitimate service if it doesn't have the Apostles' Creed in it or if there's not a confession in the absolute. So we all do this in our own way. We, we raise up the uh, production level or the experience of the worship service over what is really kind of the essence of the faith. So because I kind of been on a journey myself where I was way into like modern contemporary church, maybe 20, 15 years ago, like I wanted to be that, you know, pastor of a huge mega church that has everything slick. Well, I've kind of had some transformation in that area. And you've been to the Cedar Falls Bible Conference. I mean, that's about mm-hmm. the last. Sure. You know, one of the things we say about that is hopefully there's not much flash, but hopefully it's all substance. I, yeah. I, one of our guys called and said, what I love about the Bible Conference, there's not a lot of flash, but there's a lot of substance. Yeah. Keep it that way. Um, so because I've been kind of on this journey of rejecting everything modern and slick and cool, it's easy for me to walk into a church that has all that stuff and assume, well, they probably aren't really telling the whole gospel here. They're probably not telling the whole truth here because they're putting so much value on all this external stuff. Now I meet a guy like you, and I've seen your services, and now I'm in your church. It's nice. You've got great stuff. The production quality is high. But you listen to your preaching, and it's solid. So how do you, as you lead this church, or what advice would you have to other mm-hmm. church leaders about how do you hold that tension correctly mm-hmm. and you never give off the impression that you're more into the coolness factor mm-hmm. than you are into the biblical gospel Jesus factor? Yeah. I think there's a lot of false dichotomies in modern Christianity. I hear sometimes, well, are you guys a discipleship church or an outreach church? <laughs> Come on, the Great Commission is about reaching and teaching. It's not one or the other. Is, uh, the, is the church paradigm is meant to be a corporate gathering in a building or a house church movement? Again, both and. It always has been. Look at Acts 2. And so I think in this case, it's not one or the other. It's both and. There's nothing sinful or unbiblical about modern technology, about using the modern methods to advance the gospel. I think if the Apostle Paul had a sound system, he would have used it. Yeah. Had he been able to get on a plane and fly to Asia Minor instead of take a boat, I think you would have done it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in our modern era, there's nothing sinful or unbiblical about having high production quality. Here's the reality. There's a difference between production and performance. Mm. Okay? Good. A lot of people don't see the difference. There is. The moment for the first time they put a sound system in a church, 
and did a mic check ahead of time, you had a production. Mm -hmm. But that's different than having a performance. Performance says I'm there to entertain the crowd. Performance says I'm, I'm doing this for the audience that's in the pews instead of the audience of one that's watching from heaven. And so uh, one of our core values is excellence. The world knows excellence when they see it. We have a God that is worthy of excellence, of doing everything we do for his glory. And if indeed we are, then we'll do it excellently. What that means is we want excellence without excess. Okay? And so uh, you're in our building. It's a nice building. It's a modern building. It's a beautiful building, 2,100 seats. We have... Uh, lighting, we have a modern sound system, et cetera, et cetera. But here's the reality. Laodicea says, this is how we're going to reach them. This is how we're going to reach our community. This is how we're going to reach people is by having the cool factor and the cool stuff. No, the reality is you keep them the way you reach them. Mm -hmm. And we can never outcool the world. Right. The, the world has nicer buildings than we do. The world has a better sound system somewhere than we ever can afford. And so the reality is it still has to be authentic worship and an authentic word that is drawing people to him. That, that, that is what we can't compromise on. That is the non-negotiable. And so I think sometimes the conversation lands in the wrong place. It's not about your style. It's not about your methodology. It's not about your ministry philosophy. It's about your theology and your missiology. Uh, the very man that told me five years ago, that he thinks Romans 1 shouldn't be in the Bible because he changed his view of homosexuality. The very man that told me that also told me that his denomination is dying, and they know by the year 2050 they will cease to exist as a denomination. Because of the growth of our church, he wanted to know what we were doing. He wanted to talk about methods, methodology, models, styles, music style. I said, no. The problem is not your methodology. The problem Amen. is your theology. Amen. The problem is not your music stylistically. The problem is your missiology. See, that's the reality. God can use any model of church, Sunday school, small group. God can be glorified by any style of music, traditional, contemporary. God can use any of the methods that we try to employ, technology. But what God cannot use is a church that no longer believes the Word of God or exalts the Son of God. Amen. What do you think is going to be different in the church going forward? What do you think will be different in your church? What do you think will be different in the church? I mean, after this kind of, you know, the curve passes through and this is no longer an imminent threat. What have we learned and what's going to be different? Well, I'm praying uh, for genuine revival. And, of course, if you've done any study of church history, you know about the First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, the various other revivals that have happened since 1857 to 59. Uh, great revival took place in New York City. Incidentally, not ironically, with the stock market crash of 18, I think 59. Hmm. Uh, a million Americans came to Christ at the time. Wow. With a population total of 30 million at the time. That would be like today, 33 million Americans coming to Christ, coming to true, authentic faith in Jesus, converted to Him uh, in the space of two years. So, a remarkable transformation that takes place. And I think in some way we're going to see 
a revival that's already in the making. And just hearing what's going on in our own families, just what they're posting of uh, God bringing families together in unique ways and, and people that are generally praying and seeking his face, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Uh, we know historically church commitment has gone down. We're the most committed church members are on site like 1.8 times a month. Where, you know, I was a church kid. I was raised in church, church-going family. And Matt, we were going to be in church 50 weeks out of 52 weeks a year. Right? Those, those days are gone historically. But, but I, I think what's going to happen is initially at least there's going to be a renewed commitment to the on-site. People, are, 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 I think, really missed the community. We were made for community and junior interaction, interfacing as the body. And so initially, I think there's going to be uh, people that, that want to come back and experience church life on site. But more than anything, I think it's going to lead to a long-term transformation individually and corporately where there's a renewed commitment to the Great Commission of taking the gospel to my neighbors and the nations. That's what I see happening already. Awesome. With the true church, as you said, it's going to it's going to definitely revive the true church, and it's probably going to put the nail in the coffin of the apostate church. Which you know what I say to that? Burn, baby, burn. Yeah. I have no remorse. I don't. I don't because the apostate church has been an instrument of Satan for too long, flying undercover. So that's great. Yeah. And the true believers in those churches are going to come out. There's a lot of them, and I've, I've talked to some who they're committed to their denomination, they're committed to their church, they see themselves as a missionary, so to speak. That's fair. And, I, and, and it's fair. But I think there's a, there's a you know, the, the bride is being called out, is being called to more, and eventually you just can't stay when you're alive with something that is dead. Good stuff. Last question. My wife and I have talked about this a little bit. What, there are some things that we're not going to go back to. I mean, or that we'll try not to go back to. And there's other things that we will go back to. I'm a sports fan. I told you I was going to go to Vegas with my buddies. I think that trip's going to be on the schedule next year. We missed it this year. It's a lot of fun. Uh, my son and I are baseball fans. We're in the process of seeing the Yankees play in every ballpark. We're traveling around. We had four to go. We we're going to finish it this summer. It looks like baseball's not going to happen. Um, Everybody's kind of got their own thing that they're not doing now that they would otherwise be doing. Uh, and I can't think of anything personally right now that I'm, quote, not going to go back to. One of the things we're not going to go back to, I guess, would be a lack of discipline around family devotions. Mm -hmm. So we're going to maintain that. Um, but I could, I could see myself, we're, still, we're Hawkeyes football fans. I think we'll still have tickets this fall and, and do that and tailgate and all this stuff. What I'm thinking about is, I don't know what's going to be different on the outside, but I'll just approach that stuff differently on the inside. I'm not going to get quite as wrapped up in it internally as I have in the past. Mm -hmm. um, this is just a, pa a, a pastoral question for a pastor. Mm -hmm. Think of me as one of your parishioners. Mm -hmm. What's your advice uh, to navigating? How, how do you decide what to go back to? How do you hold those things that you will go back to that are worldly in a sense, Loose, looser than you did in the past. What are you thinking about and reflecting on for yourself in terms of those kind of things? Well, just remember, it's just because something is secular doesn't mean it's sinful. There's yeah. nothing sinful about 
going to every baseball stadium in the U.S. with your son, making those memories, even though one could argue, well, that's not an eternal, but it, everything is sacred to God in our life. Everything is. There's nothing wrong with going on vacation, going to Florida. You know, I'm trying to take my family to Hawaii. We've never been. Make a family memory. But what, but what God wants to change, that, will, that, that when I say things will never again be the same, the value system, the, the way we value those things have to change. Uh, I have a renewed sense of the nearness of the second coming. We are, we are living to see the apostasy that Paul talked about 2,000 years ago that no other church generation, no other person in church history could live to say. It didn't matter if you were a Methodist, a Lutheran, a Presbyterian, a Baptist, or whatever. Everybody mm -hmm. kind of believed the same thing. It's not true anymore. Mm -hmm. We're living to see that. Uh, I could talk all day about the prophetic implications of this event, I'm convinced personally, that is setting the stage geopolitically, the platform, the props, the players, mm. for the greatest event ever, the mm. second coming of Christ, the nearness. So what I pray will never, ever change is the urgency. So for me personally, this is re-energized. And I didn't, I didn't really feel like I needed to be re-energized in the ministry after 20 years. I mean, I've never lacked vision for our church for the Great Commission. But in some ways it has re-energized me because I have the sense of the, the shortness of the hour, the nearness uh, that Jesus is. is. And, and so um, just, just basically live with this absolute no holds barred, no retreat, no regret, leave it all on the field. Let's go for it mm -hmm. and withhold nothing from him. Uh, and for me personally, it's renewed. Look, um, I was never prayerless, but I was at times not nearly as prayerful mm -hmm. as I should have been. Mm -hmm. And uh, the prayerless church is a powerless church. And so for me personally, what I pray will never change is this desperation that drives one to prayer. And with prayer comes power, the power of God upon our life to see the miraculous move of the Spirit of God on people's lives. It's good stuff. I'm going to have you close us in prayer here. Um, we've kept six feet of distance. We had some Clorox wipes to clean everything up. I think we've followed all the regulations. Just again, thank you so much, Phil, for letting me come down here, interview you. Uh, people, in addition to this interview, to really make it make total sense, you need to watch the March 29th message, Arise and Awaken. You can find that at Abundant Life Church. What's the website? Yeah, it's livingproof.co. 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 Our mission is to be living proof of a loving God to watching world. So you see living proof around here everywhere you look. So it's livingproof.co. And you can find that sermon as well as all the others that I've preached. And Matt, I'm just very honored you would make the drive to come down here, Kansas City Metro. And uh, you're always welcome. And I uh, hope I get to see you again really soon. You're doing a great work to advance the kingdom and glorify our precious King, the resurrected Son of God. I'm so thankful for a great brother. Great. Jesus, I pray for every person under the sound of my voice that God in heaven, you would bless each one with a double portion of your spirit upon their life in the days ahead. Lord, for the bride of Christ to awaken, to arise, 
Lord, for the filling of the Holy Spirit, for the power of God to be upon us. Lord, I claim that promise for all of us right now of Acts 1 and verse 8, where he said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Lord, we pray for that power of the Holy Spirit to be a powerful witness to you, Jesus, at such a time as this. Lord, we know that you've allowed this divine interruption to bring us to a greater level of desperation so that, Lord, you could renew our vision for the Great Commission. Lord, we pray for our nation and the world that there would be an awakening spiritually of the Bride of Christ everywhere, that, Lord, you'd be drawing people who don't know you to you supernaturally, miraculously, that their eyes would be open, and that, Lord, you would bring repentance to the Bride of Christ and renewal to the Bride of Christ and, Lord, revival to the Bride of Christ in this historic and prophetic time in which we live. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Phil. Hey, if you enjoyed this interview, this conversation, you might enjoy some other ones that we've got. And uh, we, we publish these every week at the CC Podcast. And uh, we had a great one with Ron Gruber, who is a former gangster, murderer, who came to Christ and is now doing some great work in prisons. We also talked to Ike Butker about the journey that God has him on from football with the Hawkeyes to the Buffalo Bills. Talked to Christina and Kimbo, who struggle with the unmet expectation of singleness. And uh, that can be an encouragement to anybody who deals with unmet expectations. That's all of us. And we also talked with Dr. Rich Frankhauser, who is uh, the medical director of a nursing home and has the responsibility of keeping that nursing home COVID-19 free. He shares some of his medical and spiritual thoughts about that. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next time.